It's time for Legally Speaking with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. A busy week in terms of legal news stories, Michael. And we also spoke with the Attorney General about ICBC changes earlier today. Yes, uh, both of those are uh, true. And I listened with interest to uh, the Attorney General's uh, uh, defense of the uh, proposed changes to the Evidence Act and as well as the larger proposed change to a no-fault system. And one of the good questions I thought you asked uh, of the Attorney General was, with respect to the, I think the, the essence of it was given ICBC's reputation for, in some cases, not treating people fairly, what assurance could we have that under a no-fault system there could be a, an adequate review of their decisions? And the Attorney General's response was to say, well, we're proposing three things, an ombudsperson, a fairness officer, and then ultimately the idea that disputes could go to an uh, organization called the Civil Resolution Tribunal. Yes. Now, an ombudsperson, as everyone will know, has no authority to make a decision. They can issue statements about fairness. A fairness officer equally has no power to decide a individual dispute. And so that really leaves that Civil Resolution Tribunal. And I think it's important for people to know why that may not be an adequate protection uh, if ICBC chooses to treat somebody in an unfair fashion. The, origin, the, the fundamental problem is this. Currently, if you disagree with a position ICBC is taking, there is a genuinely independent avenue for review. It's going to court. Um, the Civil Resolution Tribunal, the problem with it, uh, is that people who are uh, appointed to sit on that are appointed by the provincial government, uh, they are uh, ordering council appointments. They'd be sort of sitting at pleasure. Uh, and the I've got a job posting for that position right here. It may be of interest. It says this. The initial appointments are for a term of between two and four years. Members may be appointed for an additional term of up to five years for this full-time job. Now, I'd like to imagine, of course, you've got a dispute with the wholly-owned government insurance company, how do you think uh, that application for a continuation of your job after your initial two or four years is going to go uh, if your decisions were wholly unfavorable uh, to the government's wholly owned insurance company? That's not fair. It's not independent. That sort of a structure may be fine for sorting out what it was originally intended to be, which were things like very small, small claims disputes between private individuals. Probably appropriate for that. Yes. Uh, and a proportionate use of resources for that sort of problem. But you should not have people uh, who are uh, looking to have their job renewed uh, by one of the parties with whom you might be having a dispute. That's not fair. And that is, I think, at the heart of why uh, the proposed change to no fault should be so worrisome to people it would mean that you may be left without any meaningful independent uh, review process. Your review may begin and end with a person who's hoping to keep their job, uh, and that just isn't appropriate. One of the um, things I have noticed, just as an ordinary layperson uh, examining public affairs, is that there is a judicial culture in Canada that fiercely and entirely justifiably will defend its independence from any improper incursions being made by governments for any reason. It's much less of, of a politicized culture than we see, say, in the United States of America, where state judges have to literally run for election and they will collect donations from counsel who may appear before them at one point in future. That's just, that's galling to me that that can happen. We don't do anything 
anything like that here in Canada. But that is not to say that justices are unaccountable. They are held to account by each other, not by the government itself. So we have that accountability mechanism. I can't help but wonder with the Civil Resolution Tribunal, it's not like there's going to be an entire judiciary where they all hold each other to account with various methods and mechanisms. It'll be the politically empowered government that ultimately makes those calls to hire and perhaps not renew. So I think your concerns are entirely justified, Michael. And, and you could fix that. You could easily imagine how you could have members of the Civil Resolution Tribunal uh, not appointed in that way, not have uh, positions that are short-term and subject to a review, subject to renewal or not. Um, you could create a, a structure which was more akin to a provincial court judge, such that they wouldn't need to be fired or wouldn't be hoping for some reward based on what their decisions were. Yes. You could certainly fix that. Um, and so uh, when there's this discussion about whether we should move to no fault or not, that is right at the heart of why it's so problematic. Pe- people, uh, you know, ICBC has a uh, reputation. It's earned it over many years. And it is that reputation which produces so many cases going to court when they shouldn't, right? If the uh, ICBC acted in a fair fashion and offered people what they would receive at the end of the day promptly, there would be no reason to be hiring counsel and going to trial. That happens because what's being offered is not the amount that should have been awarded. It's the only reason for it. And so with an organization that has that culture, uh, having allowing them to make uh, decisions which are only reviewable by individuals who are beholden to the provincial government uh, is not appropriate. Now, the decisions can be reviewed by a higher level of court, can they not, or how does that work? Well, decisions may be reviewable on the basis of a judicial review to determine things like whether the decision was in, within the realm of reasonableness. Okay, but that's not a, but that's not a meaningful okay. process. So it, it just should not be that you are subject to uh, decision-making by a government insurance company and your appeal mechanism is to a group of people who are hoping to have their jobs renewed by the government that owns the insurance company. That's not right. That should be fixed. Uh, if for other reasons you think no fault's a good idea, you, you certainly shouldn't have one where that is the... Uh, the review mechanism. I think that's one of the very helpful things that I learned from our segments that we do together, and I hope the public realizes as well, is that when a court of appeal reviews a matter, or the Supreme Court itself, it's not a whole new trial where everything's redone. It's uh, the higher courts are courts of error. There has to be an error identified. That error can be reviewed, and in some cases held or or overturned, but it's not a complete redo. Uh, Some things done by the trial judge will not be changed regardless. That's quite right. You don't just get a do-over because you want one, but the point is that the person making the decision should be independent and should not be employed by either of the parties to the dispute. All right. Great point. Uh, What else do we want to talk about today? I see we have Section 423 of the Criminal Code on the agenda again. Yeah, I think that's worth uh, mentioning along with a couple of other related sections. That section, which we've discussed before, is the section that expressly prohibits blocking of highways for the purpose of compelling somebody to do something or not do something. Um, And the point there is that no injunction is required to enforce that. But the other elements of the criminal code that I think people should be aware of include the fact that it is a criminal offense to counsel somebody to commit an offense. uh, And you can become a party to an offense if you're doing something to encourage or assist somebody in committing it. And so the point there is that if you're posting things, for example, online saying, I urge you to go out and block the highway to cause this or that to happen... Uh, that activity is in itself a criminal offense. Not the people captured by that are not simply the people who are out on the highway. 
Uh, but if you're involved in encouraging people to behave in that way, you also are committing a criminal offense. And the only thing preventing the police from choosing to arrest you as well is their exercise of discretion. Uh, and uh, that uh, exercise of discretion may wind up being exercised in a less patient fashion uh, if this sort of behavior continues. Ordinarily, what factors are weighed when an officer exercises such discretion? I had that question on open lines earlier this week. I didn't feel well enough informed to, to give a good answer. Well, it's going to depend on the nature of the discretion being exercised. I mean, uh, on any call the police are going to get, the individual officer is going to exercise some discretion in terms of how to proceed, right? If a you know, constable gets called to a bar fight, for example. They're going to exercise discretion in terms of, well, what do I think happened here? Should the person be arrested? Uh, does this, you know, there's going to be all sorts of individualized discretion, and we absolutely need that. You do not want to live in a place where there are, uh, you know, robots or automatons yeah, out enforcing the law. We don't want that. Yeah. For these sort of things, it's going to be like the, you know, blocking the highway. Those decisions are going to be made at a higher level. They're not going to leave it to whatever constable gets the 911 call transfer it about, oh, my God, the highway is blocked. Those are the sort of decisions which would be made by the chief of police. Uh, you know, they're going to take into account all manner of things in deciding, you know, what's the best uh, best approach to this. So taking a look at 431, everyone's guilty of an indictable offense and liable to imprisonment for a term of not more than five years or is guilty of an offense punishable on summary conviction who wrongfully, etc., etc. I hardly ever hear about this being exercised, though, Michael, in terms of encouraging the blocking. Why, why do you think that is? Uh, well, that's a good question. Um, the, uh, again, it's simply an exercise of discretion. Uh, but uh, if you have uh, somebody out encouraging that sort of behavior or encouraging any criminal offense for that matter, could be um, like we saw, for example, the arrests for mischief with the yes. people blocking the premier's uh, driveway. Um, if the uh, police were aware that uh, some person had encouraged uh, others to go and block the driveway, online post, for example, uh, that person as well uh, is committing a criminal offense. You're, you're not permitted to counsel others to go and do something. Um, you're not permitted to go online and post things saying, hey, I encourage you to rob the bank today or, you know, you might want to go and commit murder. All of those things are unlawful for pretty obvious reasons. Um, and so uh, the uh, as if this sort of behavior continues, you, you may well see police exercising discretion uh, in a different way than they have been. Um, so far, they've clearly been exercising, I think, a, a fair bit of patience, uh, allowing uh, and deciding not to uh, immediately arrest. Um, and, you know, one of the things which they would no doubt be taking into consideration is not wanting to do things which would uh, encourage that sort of behavior uh, because people engaged in that sort of behavior are looking for attention and they want to have some sort of yeah. a conflict. Yeah. And so police quite wisely are doing things like saying, look, I'll, I'll wait some period of time, I'll encourage you to leave, uh, um, and then they do sensible things in terms of how they would eventually, you know, clear the building or get people off the street. Um, I must say, I chuckled the other day watching the protesters being carried away from the uh, port in Vancouver. Uh, somebody had given some thought as to which officers you mis might wish to uh, assign to the task of carrying the protesters off. Uh, and they, they weren't a bunch of sort of burly looking young men. Uh, they had some... Uh, you know, kind-looking female officers who were there, you know, picking these people up gently and carrying them off. Uh, you know, that's not a mistake. Uh, the police are a pretty sophisticated uh, operation there. They're going to be aware of what the uh, imagery and reporting of that's going to be. And so having the kind, smiling-looking 
uh, officer who doesn't look particularly intimidating there, you know, carrying the person off is going to be probably, from their perspective, a much more satisfactory state of affairs than, you know, the ERT team going in with, uh, you know, bang, you know, flashbang grenades and people with, uh, you know, automatic rifles. So that's the sort of thing which they might take into account is, of course, they don't want to just sort of encourage more of this behavior to get more attention. All right. Uh, let's take a quick break. And after the break, the Supreme Court of Canada on Friday helped us with a useful summary of what Aboriginal title is. I hear all the time, Michael, oh, it's the, there should be sovereign land. And I keep saying no because I've read through all the cases and it keeps saying specifically that Indigenous nations are not sovereign, that they don't have a veto. You're going to help us understand why after the break. And I'm thankful for that. Stick around, everybody. Do Indigenous nations have a right to free prior and informed consent under Canadian law? No, they do not. Are they sovereign under Canadian law? No, they are not. Our courts have held consistently for decades these simple truths. Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers brought to my attention a finding by the Supreme Court of Canada on Friday that provides a useful summary of what Aboriginal title is, Michael. Indeed it does. Uh, this is a bit of a sleeper decision. It came out on Friday. And it's uh, the underlying dispute was a dispute between um, a uh, mining company uh, that has an operation that's uh, large and expanding that straddles the border between Quebec and uh, Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, and uh, an Innu group there, I think two of them, who are opposed to the expansion and continuation of that mining operation. Uh, and so the, the dispute uh, or the claim to stop it was brought in Quebec. And the mining concern argued that, well, hold on a minute, uh, part of this mine is not in Quebec, uh, it's over in Newfoundland and Labrador, so what authority does this Quebec Superior Court have over that bit of it? Uh, which got the attention of Newfoundland and Labrador, thought, yes, yes, uh, you <laughs> yes, know, yes. hold on a minute. Uh, <laughs> we're on the news. Uh, we're on the news, what's going on? Okay. So that is the, the issue that the Supreme Court of Canada was sorting out, was the issue of can a, a Superior Court in Quebec deal with a Section 35 Aboriginal uh, uh, treaty and Aboriginal rights claim, including the bit of the project that's not in Quebec. Huh, so that was the, the the narrow legal issue, and ultimately the majority concluded yes, the uh, the court in Quebec can deal with that constitutional issue, and part I think out of a concern that otherwise you would have duplicate litigation going on in two provinces anytime something straddled the two provinces, and so there we are. But is in that context that I think the Supreme Court of Canada provided a somewhat useful summary of uh, trying to summarize what Section 35 uh, Aboriginal rights, uh, treaty rights are, and what they are not. Uh, and the uh, the summary there, I think, is useful in the context of some of the rhetoric that's been used in British Columbia um, surrounding uh, the uh, pipeline dispute. Yes. Yeah. And some of the rhetoric that you hear are things like, um, you know, this is a sovereign... Uh, uh, First Nation, or you've heard uh, language about, uh, you know, consent is required, things of this sort. And um, at least according to the Supreme Court of Canada, those are not uh, an accurate statement of what Aboriginal rights and title uh, are. Uh, and there is still work to be done defining what exactly the limits of Aboriginal title uh, amount to. Yes. And the Supreme Court of Canada has talked about that being a collective right uh, yes. to the territory. Uh, they've talked about it being uh, distinct from the sort of fee-simple ownership somebody might have, uh, in part because, for example, 
that collective right isn't simply for the benefit of people who are currently living there, but for future generations. And, and that's, that's so interesting. So you can't do anything that would deprive the rights of people's yet to be born of hunting, fishing, and other attributes of being have, having a substantial connection to the land. It's really fascinating. Yeah, you couldn't sell it off to, you know, Hilton Hotels. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, you know, use the money for some other purpose. So the... Uh, in the context of discussing all of that, uh, the Supreme Court of Canada again makes clear, as it has in previous decisions, uh, that there is no doubt uh, about uh, Canadian sovereignty over all of the land, uh, including uh, land for which there may be some Aboriginal uh, title. Uh, and while Aboriginal title is not the same as um, fee simple title, the courts made that clear, when you have uh, ownership, for example, of a, a home, Right, you yeah. maybe clear. Yes, I've got fee simple title to that home. That does not mean that you have sovereign control over the territory in which your home sits. Uh, the uh, you know RCMP, if you commit a crime, will show up and arrest you on your property. You can't say you can't come here. Um, and, and or, for example, if there was some uh, you know public need to put a highway or sewage treatment plant pipe or something else through your property, you know there's going to be a process. You're going to have to they're going to have to talk to you about that. And they may have to pay you some compensation for using it, but ultimately the hydro line or sewage treatment pipe or highway or whatever it might be is going to go through there. Yes. Yeah. Um, otherwise, nothing, of course, could possibly, you know, no public work of that sort could ever be completed if everyone had an absolute right to say, no, you cannot run the sewage treatment line through my backyard, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and of course, who would want that? But ultimately, Somebody that has to bend. It. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so. This case and that, I think, is a good reminder for everyone about what's really at stake. There, there is a uh, a meaningful claim to be uh, uh, advanced and defined there about what the scope of Aboriginal uh, rights and title are, but it is not uh, a sovereign control of territory. Uh, and the uh, the way sovereign control of territory is sorted out. Um, is not something you go to a domestic court and have an argument about. No. It's something which amounts to, are you able to enforce your laws in that place? So, you know, for example, if you want to ask yourself, who has sovereign control over Crimea? Well, the Ukraine might not like that outcome. It's pretty clear that sovereign control over Crimea is, is in the hands of Russia at the moment. Uh, or, you know, you can imagine what would happen if... Uh, you know, Canada tried to send the uh, RCMP in to enforce some law in Washington state. That's not going to go well. Uh, and that's how you sort out whether you've got oh, sovereign okay. control over something. It's not a matter of, hey, I wish to go to court and argue about that. It's not decided by the United Nations. It's decided by, do you have control over that territory? Do you or do you not? Uh, and It's uh, like the Arctic. We're in the debate right yeah. now over whether Canada can assert meaningful sovereignty over the Arctic because we may not have the ability to enforce our laws there because we lack the armed forces needed to do so. Correct. And you don't go to the Supreme Court and ask for control over the Arctic. Control over the Arctic is do you have control over the Arctic? And it's about that. Uh, and from a Canadian legal perspective, it's again crystal clear, and the Supreme Court of Canada references this, it's section 109 of the Constitution Act 1867 that vests in the province um, ownership of uh, and control over all lands, mines, minerals, resources, royalties, and so forth. Yeah. Um, and so as a matter of uh, Canadian law, it is very clear that the province of British Columbia has uh, sovereign control over all of the territory of British Columbia, including uh, any territory where there might be some... Um, uh, Aboriginal title 
uh, established and protected by Section 35 of the Constitution. The Aboriginal title is a real thing, but it does not mean uh, that it is sovereign control over the territory. The province of British Columbia's laws of general application apply there. If you commit a crime, the police are going to show up there and arrest you for it. Um, And so whatever Aboriginal title does mean, it does not mean you have sovereign control over it and you're immune to, you know, the requirements to abide by the criminal code or immune from any other general law that would uh, apply there. Nor does it mean you have an absolute right to veto um, anything happening there any more than owning your home uh, attaches some absolute right to veto the highway or the sewage treatment pipe going through your property. They're going to have to talk to you about it, but uh, ultimately, if there's a compelling need to do that, it's going to be expropriated and the pipe's going to go in. Uh, And the same is true there. So I think that context is important when you hear that uh, sort of language and rhetoric about, well, we didn't have consent or this wasn't seeded or things of that sort. It really is not uh, very helpful or accurate in terms of uh, the the legal reality and how it actually works. I like this quote here in paragraph 35 from Friday's decision. Aboriginal title is also firmly grounded in the relationships formed by the confluence of prior occupation and the assertion of sovereignty by the Crown. It then quotes the Silcotine Nation decision, paragraph 72. Aboriginal title would not exist if the Crown was not sovereign. If Indigenous nations are sovereign, it means that the Crown is not sovereign. If the Crown is not sovereign, it means that there is no Aboriginal title. It would, it, it's a paradox. It would, it would fall apart. So it can't be sovereign. Well, I mean, you can make a sovereign claim to something. If It's like if you want to make a sovereign claim to your backyard, uh, good luck to you. Um, the police are likely going to show up and take control over it. Um, that's, that's what that kind of a claim means. But right. what's really being advanced is not that. Uh, what's really being advanced is this Aboriginal title claim. That's what's being pursued in court reasonably. It's constitutionally enshrined. Yeah. But that is a very different thing from saying, I've got sovereign control over it and you need my consent before you put that uh, highway or, you know, line in or whatever. That's that's not uh, what is, uh, what's afforded by Canadian law. Michael, thank you for your explanations and the clarity that you bring to these matters as always. It is greatly appreciated. Thank you. Legally speaking, every Thursday during the second half of our second hour on CFAX 1070.